Hour features Joe Allen pushing back at Amazon. Amazon, the retail behemoth, is named after the giant river in South America. The company began in the Seattle area in 1994. Since then, it has not just grown and expanded, but has transformed marketing. Consumers are attracted to, in some instances, lower prices, but overwhelmingly it's the sheer convenience of online shopping and home delivery. But all is not rosy for Amazon's hundreds of thousands of workers. They are pushing back, demanding better wages, working conditions, and benefits. Again, as we see elsewhere in the corporate world, the lack of a union to back up worker needs is glaring. Organizing is difficult, and management likes it that way. Some politicians are saying Amazon is too big and too powerful and needs to be either broken up or more carefully regulated. Our guest today is Joe Allen. He's a Chicago-based writer and activist in peace and social justice movements. He spoke in Chicago at the Socialism 2019 conference in early July. Amazon, right? I mean, it's such a friggin' nightmare. Where do you begin, right? You know, you have the richest man in the world, and he makes his money off of workers who are paid relatively low wages for the most part, contingent employment, back-breaking work. But that's just kind of the beginning of discussing the Amazon nightmare in this country. There was a two-year uh, race to the bottom to, uh, to, for the cities to outbid themselves to provide uh, Amazon with subsidies, tax breaks, serfs, uh, whatever, to create their new second headquarters, which they, decide, after playing a bit of a shell game, uh, decided to put in Northern Virginia, which, lo and behold, uh, was later revealed that uh, it's to deepen their relationship with the Central Intelligence Agency. Amazon's image over the last few years is certainly not one that shines as bright as it once did. I mean, it's, you know, within our living lives, but actually within the last five years, that all of the tech giants have been gone from being seen as saviors of humanity and the planet. I mean, remember when Mark Zuckerberg was supposed to save the planet and Steve Jobs and, you know, and and Jeff Bezos. Uh, And now they're all seen as corporate criminals living off of the public treasury and all being led by people who are kind of weird. You know, I mean, when, when Bezos was asked, you know, what do you plan to do with your fortune? He said, you know, mostly space travel. You know, most of us think about, you know, co-pays, uh, paying the rent. But Jeff has greater ambitions for his money. At the same time, this is all going on, is that I don't want to say that Amazon is a, is a company under siege. I think that that's a little, that's a little too strong. Uh, but what you do see is that there's much more pushback. Uh, Even in the heart of Amazon land, you start to see uh, resistance to their policies. Last spring, we saw an effort by many of the white-collar techs at Amazon's headquarters in Seattle to get a petition going that called for the company to be more transparent and accountable on environmental issues. And since most Amazon white-collar employees own stock and are stockholders, they can actually get resolutions put before the Amazon board of directors, much to the annoyance of Jeff Bezos and the top leaders of, a, of, of Amazon Incorporated. By the end of the petition drive, they had 6,000 Amazon employees 
mostly the white-collar employees, had signed on to this resolution asking for more transparency around environmental issues. Their resolution was, of course, voted down by the board of directors, but nonetheless it showed that all is not happy in Amazon land. So Amazon is a, is a, is a company that I think, you know, over the last five years, its public image has been completely transformed. It's a company where you find widespread opposition to its policies, particularly when it comes to tax subsidies and, you know, the revelation that it paid no federal taxes whatsoever uh, in 2018 and 2017. We have seen the possibilities of community and labor action against these policies, and we've begun to see some job actions that have actually won concessions against against Amazon on, on the job. So this is quite a on one hand, quite a transformation. And at the same time, we should also recognize that Amazon is an incredibly wealthy company. It's incredibly powerful. Uh, It seems to be everywhere uh, doing everything, including owning newspapers, the grocery store. You know, people may or may not like analogies about using octopuses to illustrate a point, but nonetheless, the idea that Amazon has reached deep into every area of the economy and transformed it I think is, is, undoubtedly, is undoubtedly true. For us as socialists, as activists, the question that always comes up in all of this stuff is what can, what can we do to actually promote uh, workers' power on the job, trade union organizations, something where we can begin to fundamentally shift the relationship between the workers of Amazon and the bosses of bosses of Amazon. And so when, you know, when people ask me, well, you know, how should we pose this How about can we organize Amazon? Because it's very much posed as a question, like what would it take to organize a behemoth that that Amazon uh, has uh, has become? We've seen some chinks in its armor. How do we actually defeat uh, the corporate monster? Okay, so I'm going to try to address some some of that, some of that today. And I I want other people's ideas on this, because Amazon is a company that's not just located in one city. It's it's everywhere. Well, the first thing I, I think we need to do is, you know, how did we get here? You know, if you go back 50 years ago, the major, you know, retail uh, outlets, the, the major transportation companies, you know, the companies that we now sort of ubiquitously call logistics, you know, because logistics is a term that's, you know, applied to everything, right? I mean, people just call, you know, I'll call myself a logistics company because it makes you sound more important, right? Uh, but it is true that you go back 50 years ago when the economy was more unionized, it was more localized, workers had more of a say in what was going on, the economy was more regulated, and yet 50 years later, we seem to live in a completely different world. And a lot of the time, that's either just given the, the quick term of the logistics revolution or neoliberalism. And, you know, what does all this mean? And then how did somebody like Amazon emerge out of this? Well, I think it's important to say that the logistics revolution is not just, a, is not just an interesting sort of tagline or advertising buzzword out of Madison Avenue. It's a real uh, thing. Uh, logistics is still for most people, though I think it probably less so these days, still has a kind of military uh, ring to it, you know, that logistics is about winning wars and marshalling, you know, the resources of a nation to fight another nation in a, in a major war. And, of course, you know, that's, that's an important thing for the, for the 20th century and its impact on civilian logistics because, after all, the 20th century saw two of the greatest world wars in history, you know, World War I and World War II, which had a fundamental impact not just on who the major powers were, 
but also an impact on how the civilian uh, economy uh, it was won, uh, was transformed by this, uh, by this. Now, of course, you know, you go back to the end of World War II, uh, this might be hard for many of the younger comrades to know, but there was, there was no GPS, uh, there were no personal computers, uh, there was no federal highway system, uh, most of the ports in the United States were relics of the 19th century, uh, there was no barcodes, uh, you know, somehow we managed to have the French and uh, American revolutions win the, defeat the South in the Civil War and have the Bolshevik Revolution, and we did it without the Internet. I, I'm a little facetious there, but I think it's important to, to say sort of things like that. Uh, the world of 50, 60 years ago was, was very different. And it's the interaction between military logistics and the civilian economy that begin to transform not only transportation and the organization of production and distribution, but it actually kind of changes who are the major players in the national and in the world economy. So this is where we begin to see in the 1960s and 70s the rise of containerization in the ports, which transforms how goods are sent all over the world. Uh, we begin to see the, a move towards the massive deregulation of, of the national economies. Uh, we begin to see a move towards a much more hostile atmosphere for uh, the labor movement. Uh, and we also see a major capital investment in revamping the port systems and the global transportation networks. And all of this begins to produce a real radical change, not only where goods are produced, but also the relationship between the producers, the retail industry, and how consumers are finally serviced at the, at the end of the line on this. Uh, during this era, this is where you begin to see the emergence of companies like Walmart, for instance, who begin to sort of blur the distinction between uh, the old manufacturing and retail economies. And what I mean by that is if you go back 50, 60 years ago, the economy was rather predictable. You had people who produced things, you had people who stored them in warehouses, and you had companies that, st that, that sold them. And in, the same, in a way, that's kind of how it's still done. Except the players are different. So companies like Walmart begin to have, because they become so big and so well organized, that they begin to actually dominate the manufacturing companies themselves. Throughout the 70s and the 80s, Walmart grows from being a regional company based in a place called Arkansas to then be emerging to becoming a, uh, not only dominating the American economy, but eventually becoming the world's largest private employer. And in some ways, Walmart becomes the model for the logistics corporation, where they begin to blur some of these distinctions between manufacturing and, and distribution. In the 1990s, this really picks up steam, uh, not only because Walmart sort of has this juggernaut that kind of takes over the retail economy, but you begin to see other retail giants like Home Depot, Target, particularly in the United States, and the emergence of major uh, transportation companies, delivery companies such as UPS and FedEx, who begin to play a kind of major role in the U.S. economy in a way that they were a fairly subordinate part of the American economy in the decades before that. This all leads, particularly uh, with all the, the new transportation networks, both air, sea, and land, that leads to what we call the creation of new concentrations of production all over North America. Uh, Kim Moody in his, his book, New Terrain, talks about how there are 65 definable logistics clusters that are all connected by major rail, uh, air, land, and ports where there's the highest concentration of production and distribution throughout, throughout the United States. Not surprisingly, the three biggest ones are New York, 
Chicago and in Los Angeles. This means that in a lot of ways, it's a, a world that's kind of was transformed. When I was a young socialist, one of the things that we lived through in the 1970s and the 1980s was really kind of the destruction or reorganization of the old industrial economy. I, I, they don't only closed the steel mills, they blew them up. Uh, you know, the old uh, centers of auto production like Detroit and Toledo turned into ghost towns. And in one sense, what the logistics revolution has done is that it's recreated another industrial working class in many places right on top of where the older ones exist. So when you go to the major logistics companies today, Walmart with nearly a million employees, but then you go to companies like United Parcel Service, which has 460,000 global uh, employees, 300,000 of them in the United States, 250,000 of them are members of the Teamsters Union. FedEx has 300,000 employees in the United States. Uh, the uh, Amazon, which was, built, which was started in 1994 in Seattle, and of course the, the company mythology is, is that it was in Bezos' garage with a door for the first desk, and I'm sure that's probably true, but, you know, it's sort of like, you know, Jesus with the chalice. It sort of becomes, you know, when you want to create a legend, you make it into, some, into something, you make it into something else. But a company that has existed for less than 25 years has over 640,000 worldwide employees, most of whom are concentrated in the United States. So what you have with the logistics revolution is not just simply a creation of a, of a new industrial clusters across the country, many of which are right on top of the old industrial centers. So for example, if you go out to Willow Springs on, off of Route 55 here in Chicago, you'll see the enormous Chicago area hub of UPS, which has 8,000 people. Well, that was built on top of the old uh, GM Fisher body plant. And if you go all across the country, you see the same sort of thing. Uh, it's not also a surprise that, that the, the heavy overlay of military logistics with civilian logistics also continues because one of the biggest concentrations of uh, logistics workers in the Midwest is out in Joliet, Illinois, at the old Joliet Arsenal, which, among other things, used to make nerve gas to fight in the First World War. Uh, and was a munitions supply depot right through the 1980s. Uh, so, you know, you can go all over the world and you can see this phenomena, but in the United States it's pretty, it's pretty starkly clear. You know, when people talk about the disappearing working class or the, the disappearing industrial working class, it's almost, you have to say to people, well, one, another one has been created and it actually knocks on your door and delivers to you in a, in a lot of ways. It's sort of... I, what I'm trying to encourage people to do is to look at something very differently. Now, Amazon, of course, in some ways, in the same way that, you know, Walmart led the logistics revolution in the 70s and 80s, Amazon has kind of taken off from, uh, from Walmart. And this is not an accident. Uh, according to Edward Stone's book, The Everything Store, apparently Jeff Bezos used to carry around a copy of Sam Walton's autobiography with him, the, Sam Walton being the founder of, of Walmart. And it seems that the one thing that he took from the Walmart model was to work his people to death. Uh, one early founder of Amazon, when they only had one sorting hub in Seattle, uh, expressed some concern to Bezos about 
our people pay too much money to park around here, Jeff. Why don't we just get people bus passes? And he said, no, no, no. We don't want to do that because if they have a bus pass, it means they have to catch the last bus home. And if they have cars, it means they can sleep in the cars and then come back to work earlier in the next shift. He never denied that, by the way. I mean, that was publicly, you know. So and if you go to a Walmart or a Amazon hub, the working conditions, I think, kind of reflect that. But it's also, I think, more important to see that what Bezos has done with the construction of Amazon is he's taken what was given to him by Walmart, that is the idea of using GPS and barcodes and advanced technology to then run a retail system through the Internet in a way that Walmart continued to build brick-and-mortar stores right up until very, very recently, within the last six or seven, the last six or seven years. Uh, in 2012, uh, Amazon uh, instituted what they called Operation Dragon Boat. Now, if that sounds like something out of a bad Bond movie, uh, I don't think you're mistaken. And that was their plan to create a global shipping network that would include, among other things, a shipping line to bring consumer goods from China to the United States and a worldwide air network uh, to connect all of their, their hubs. And by and large, they have implemented, uh, implemented that plan. What makes Amazon, of course, different from Walmart is that it's been able to put together both being a retail operation and a transportation network at the same time, which makes it very different from both Walmart and companies like UPS. There are over 250 Amazon facilities across the country right now, which they've all built in the last six years, by the way. It is probably a building spree that far surpasses anything that UPS or FedEx did during their go-go days. So, for example, it took UPS 90 years to have 150,000 employees. It took uh, Walmart uh, less than 10 years uh, to do that. So the speed of change has been quite dramatic. And with their purchase of Whole Foods, it's given them that brick-and-mortar presence that they pretty much avoided for a long time. Now, for organizing Walmart, of course, this also uh, has created both things that are similar and different from Walmart. People may remember from things that they read about Walmart in the past, but the one way that they try to avoid unionization is they built all of their hubs out in the middle of nowhere, right? So you were in the cornfields here, you were way out there. So union organizers technically, you know, for some reason can't drive. I, don't, I never really understood the, the logic behind Walton, you know, you know. But, and, I mean, so that's how they view the world, right? I mean, it's not quite right. But, you know, but they would build them in depressed areas, where people were glad to have a job. They were far away from the urban cities, which they identified with unions. But the difference, of course, with with Amazon is because it wants to be a delivery company that provides things in one, two, or several-hour service. They have to build hubs in the cities. So one of the things that I think everybody knows from even just wandering around their their own hometowns is that Amazon hubs are not way out in the middle of nowhere. They're literally just within blocks of major... Uh, major neighborhoods. So, you know, here in Chicago, they have an Amazon Prime delivery service on Goose Island, which is three minutes from the loop. They have major delivery hubs all around the city. And then they have major, uh, what they call sortation hubs, regional hubs. You know, they've, they've built regional centers, but more importantly, they've had to build hubs in the cities, which means that they're far more accessible 
to community organizing and labor and labor and labor organizing. In fact, while, uh, in fact, Amazon is on such a building spree, a building spree and a buying spree for delivery trucks that they placed an order with, for Mercedes-Benz in South Carolina to build them 50,000 delivery vans. So they not only have created a kind of new type of logistics corporation that puts together retail and transportation, they've created now this enormous industrial workforce of warehouse workers and delivery workers who are quite accessible to uh, people who are interested in, in organizing them. Now, having said that, I think it's also worth noting that organizing in the transportation industry historically in the United States has been both some of the most difficult and it's also been some of the struggles that have produced some of the greatest political struggles in the history of the United States. So, I mean, when you, when you think about the current generation of workers who are employed by companies like Amazon and increasingly attempts by Walmart, Target, and others to mimic these things from Amazon is that these struggles have a potential to actually uh, bring out uh, not just simply struggles over wages and working conditions, but very political struggles. So, you know, just think for a moment about some of the big transport struggles of the past. I mean, things like you know, the 1877 railroad uprising in the United States, which is probably the closest we've ever come to a workers' revolution uh, in this country, or the great Teamster strikes in Minneapolis in 1934, or more recently, the 1997 UPS strike, which knocked off 2% growth off the U.S. economy, and, you know, for at least a short period of time, washed away uh, many of the defeats that had been inflicted on the American working class in the 1980s and the 1990s. At the same time, it's also true that many of the transportation industries are covered by some of the most repressive labor laws in the country and have been subject to some of the most greatest political repression. So when you also look back at the great struggles of the past, you also have to remember that some of those the people who led them have also been subject to the greatest political persecution. So whether you're Eugene Debs with the you know, the Pullman strike, or Harry Bridges, who led the, the San Francisco waterfront strike, or Hoffa Sr., when he was the leader of the Teamsters, or Ron Carey, you know, though they may be different people with different politics and different histories, they're also people who suffered incredible persecution from the federal government. Um, when we bring back, I think, uh, the discussion to the practicalities of what it would take to organize an Amazon today, I think we, be, we are starting to have at least the beginnings of the possibility of talking about that type of strategy right now. Um, I began by talking about the various sort of small campaigns in and around Amazon, but I think it's also worth saying that th the transformation of, 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 I think, our discussion around the possibilities of organizing because of the teacher's struggles provide, I think that's kind of why people want to talk about Amazon now, because it's kind of lifted people's horizons about what they think uh, may be possible to do in the labor movement that we haven't done for a long time. Again, when I was talking to Mark Meinster from Warehouse Workers for Justice, they do a lot of great work across the country. I just said, well, what do you think it would take to organize at Amazon? Well, he said, one, I think it would take something big. Okay, okay, well, what do you mean big, you know? And he said, well, I think we need something like a, 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 something like a UPS-type strike that would, would, would kind of raise the expectations of all Amazon workers about a possibly different future. I think it's worth saying right now a couple of things about what it would take. One is I think it would take something bigger. 
you know, we have to have to figure out how we lay some groundwork for organizing something as enormous as Amazon, right? With 300,000 warehouse workers and drivers across the country, we can't have a national campaign to do that. There's no unions that are necessarily willing to do something like that right now. But I do think if we look at the past, particularly with the CIO in the 1930s, we should remember that things like, you know, General Motors, which was seen as the most powerful corporation in the world, wasn't organized either by a nationwide strike. It was organized by one strike in one central location, which was in Flint, Michigan. And if we look at a monster like Amazon, or even something like FedEx these days, is that what makes them vulnerable to something like a Flint-type situation is that they, have, they are highly dependent on an interconnected delivery system, particularly their air operations. So UP, uh, Amazon's air operations are based out of Cincinnati, northern Kentucky, and their major sortation centers in the Midwest. And I think for socialists and for people who are labor activists, we can't think of organizing Amazon as a whole, but we have to pick the strategic locations in Amazon where we can do systematic political work over the next few years that can lay the groundwork for a campaign and job actions. One of the things that I think is part of that is to transform, particularly in the, in the ideas of Am for Amazon employees, what a union could be in the United States right now. Uh, unfortunately, my old union, the Teamsters, is not the most inspiring union uh, in the world. I wrote a series of articles for, for Jacobin where I said if they, if, they if they have the right type of fight at the UPS, that could lay the ground for organizing at Amazon. And they, they fulfilled my expectations by going in and actually paying people, negotiating less money for start pay at UPS than what Bezos pays people uh, to start work at Amazon. Uh, so I think that when we talk about what a union could be, particularly to a workforce that Amazon has to draw out of the, the high unemployment that exists among particularly African-American neighborhoods where there's a huge turnover rate at Amazon, that, you know, we can talk about unions being something that truly can fight around black liberation, police brutality, anti-immigrant sentiment, because a lot of workers who work at Amazon are immigrant workers. And I think the Somali struggle in Minnesota should provide us with a bigger window and vision about those issues uh, on the job. So I think that when, can we organize Amazon? Well, you know, well, of course we can. Uh, but I think where we begin is something a bit more modest, which is to say that the struggles that have been, have been started, particularly by the teachers, have transformed this atmosphere. But what we want to do, I think, as a new socialist movement and as the beginnings of a new labor movement in this country, is to try to figure out those central locations at a place like Amazon where we can do systematic political work uh, over the next few years to lay the groundwork for what will undoubtedly will be at some point uh, a national struggle uh, of Amazon workers uh, to unionize themselves for dignity and justice on the job. So I will, I will end there. Thanks. You're listening to Joe Allen, Pushing Back at Amazon. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. 
or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Well, there's been um, a lot of attention paid to the uber-rich in in this culture, and they've uh, really occupied an enormous amount of space. Why do you think that is? You have to start from, I think, the, the I'm, probably the most obvious thing, which is that America has been and continues to be, however, it's not, however, it's not working for people, that the homeland of modern capitalism. So, you know, the prevailing ideas of society are that if you're rich, you get there because you deserve it, you're the smartest, you're the most innovative, and therefore you deserve the riches that come to you. And, of course, you know, the, with all, when it comes to the big tech giants, you know, uh, whether it's Apple or Facebook or Amazon or, you know, pick your favorite company, um, these are all supposed to be the, uh, you know, come out of the minds and brilliance of the people who were identified either as the founders or the still the, the still the CEOs of those companies, people like Zuckerberg or, or in the case of Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos. Amazon buys Whole Foods, the um, mm-hmm. supermarket chain, in 2017 yeah. for something like $13 billion. Yeah. How has that changed the food industry? Well, the food industry is amazing for because I think it's, even though all of us shop for food, uh, except for a very small number of people who may still be able to grow what they do in their backyards, but, but most of us go uh, and buy food. It's an enormous industry dominated by very large change. You know, there may be very venerable local chains that on one hand people go to and have gone to for years like Jewel in Chicago. Uh, they used to be Dominic's. But the fact is, is that behind them, there, there's these massive supermarket chains uh, like Kroger in the Midwest or Safeway on the West Coast. And so, you know, when uh, Bezos announced that they were buying Whole Foods, this was obviously going to transform the, uh, uh, the retail food market a lot. Because as we know from the history of both Walmart and Amazon, building upon Walmart's work, is that the big box stores and then online shopping has, you know, done away with a whole section of retail employment and brick-and-mortar shopping in that sense. Now, I think when it comes to the purchase of Whole Food is that, you know, what you're seeing is the Amazonization of Whole Food, is that, you know, the, the way that affects is both the working conditions. You know, workers are more monitored, they're more disciplined, they're more subject to the particular uh, whims of customers and judging, you know, cashiers or baggers if they're fast enough, which makes working life more miserable uh, on the job. It was already tough at a place like Whole Foods, which, you know, my friends snarkily refer to as whole paycheck because, you know, it's an expensive place to go. Uh, The other is, is that the potential for to transform online food shopping or or pickups at Whole Foods by by the new Amazon ownership. I think we haven't seen yet what that's going to mean. But there, what it could mean, though, is that there was an effort for many years of workers around the country at Whole Foods to unionize. And while it never reached the point of winning union elections or getting to a contract, it does mean that it, it, Whole Foods could be a beachhead for further union organizing in the whole Amazon empire right now. We'll see. What's the status of unionization at Amazon? Well, very marginal. Amazon has and is developing a very large uh, air network, like all the, if you're going to be a delivery company, you have to have a, a massive air force. 
like UPS, you know, like FedEx, you know, like DHL, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, right now, for the most part, Amazon contracts with Atlas Air and other carriers to uh, fly their stuff across the country and across the world. And many of those people are Teamsters. But when it comes to the warehousing staff, the drivers, the workers at Whole Food, or even the technical staff at Amazon, it's zero unionization rates. And what about a livable wage? Well, I mean, you know, it was it was made a it was a big announcement, you know, when Bezos announced that some Amazon workers would be brought up to fifteen dollars an hour. Not all, because there's a lot of people who work at Amazon, particularly in the warehouses, who work for third-party employment companies. So it doesn't apply to them. It's also true that many of the people who got a bump up to $15 an hour also had stocks taken away from them. So many of them were not particularly, they felt like the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away at the same time, right? But Amazon workers, the first thing that they usually talk about when you interview them or you see them on the news, the first thing that comes up is working conditions, and when you and this was made, I think, very clear by the most recent um, uh, John Oliver segment on warehouse work in America, where Amazon, where it, where Amazon is is featured. It's not the only one. X, XPO and others are featured in it, but Amazon comes in for a big, a big kick on in that program. And the descriptions of you know not young people. I mean, this this is tough on young people who were for who were interviewed who were working ten. 12 hours a day walking miles and miles and miles around these enormous warehouses, picking products and then trying to put them into particular uh, boxes for delivery to to customers. But there's a lot of older people at Amazon who work there. And, And the descriptions of just exhaustion, in some cases, you know, people suffering heart attacks, buildings that are not properly heated or properly cooled in the summertime, and it's also true that the wages are, you know, still fairly low. If you live in any of the major metropolitan areas in the United States, uh, while there still might be a demand to get to $15 an hour for a minimum wage, nobody can live on $15 an hour, uh, particularly if you're married and you have kids. I mean, $15 an hour is not, is not very much. So people are working really hard in really dangerous conditions, getting chronic, permanent injuries, and they're not making very much money. Uh, and what adds, you know, in, uh, insult and injury to that is, of course, the head of the company is the richest man in the world. Now, this may remind people, you know, of past of past figures, and the most notorious of them was John D. Rockefeller because he was the richest man in the world, and it was based on what was then the monopoly of the Standard Oil Company of America. And, uh, and when it was determined that his policies were uh, strangling or suffocating the business operations of other businessmen, they broke it up into seven different companies. Uh, is, is there some discussion of breaking up Amazon? There is some discussion of that. Uh, but whether that will change the working conditions of the workers there, I doubt very much. Elizabeth Warren, yes. senator from Massachusetts, has advocated for a breakup of not just Amazon, but some of the other big tech giants. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, appeals to the heart, you know, of a lot of people because they feel that something is terribly wrong. So they think the idea that breaking it up will cr- increase competition or allow other more honest people to get into the market. Uh, and while on one hand that seems to make sense, 
if you even if you look back to the lessons of the Standard Oil Company, you, well, you may break up one gigantic monopoly, but you end up with seven, uh, you know, seven other companies that are just as big and powerful and just as abusive to their customers and their employees. So I think from the perspective of, of a worker at Amazon, whether they be tech workers or worker, warehouse workers or drivers or, or, the, or the food workers at Whole Foods, the real question is unionizing the workers. That's, that's what we really, really need to be talking about. I think, I think breaking up Amazon and Facebook is kind of a distraction from that issue. In 2019, we witnessed uh, literally a shakedown of various American communities who were trying to get Amazon to locate uh, in their area. Right. And uh, Astoria, New York, mm -hmm. Queens, uh, got the bid, won the bid, <laughs> but there was enormous pushback. Absolutely. And it was and it was overturned. Now, describe what happened, and also the subsidies that the city of New York, mm -hmm. which is a collapsing infrastructure, the subways oh, are just yeah. a mess. Uh, you know, was offering Amazon, and 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 mm -hmm. people got really uh, mobilized around that. Well, as as absolutely. Well, you know, in New York City specifically, which is probably suffering the greatest gentrification. Uh, in 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 the United States right now, we're all suffering with it. You know, here, we're here in Chicago. We're suffering with it. All the major metropolitan areas are. Um, New York, everything's always on a grander scale. And in the, you know, there was a two-year basically contest or a Hunger Games, as people aptly described it, of where people, all, you know, cities, counties, little towns, big cities, state governments, everybody got into this race to the bottom to offer up. It, whatever they needed to get what uh, Amazon was calling its uh, second headquarters, its HQ2. Uh, after a long period of their teams visiting cities and, you know, wrenching, not even, I wouldn't even say they were wrenching concessions out of them. The political leaders were just falling over themselves trying to, trying to get uh, Amazon's headquarters there. They announced and, and people kind of felt screwed over by this, rightly so, that they were going to split their new headquarters between Northern Virginia and one in Queens. Uh, in New York, uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of the city, Andrew Cuomo, of the, gov uh, the governor of the state, people, two people who, you know, everyone knows hate each other, uh, came together, however, to agree to a package of over $3 billion to get Amazon to come to uh, New York City. People were rightly so just completely outraged by this. I mean, you know, New York City probably has the most segregated uh, public schools in the country. Uh, it's a city where people are being forced out by the tens of thousands every month out of their out of the homes they can't afford because of taxes and other fees or because of being thrown out by landlords. As you said, David, the public uh, transit system is you, you take your life into your hand riding the subway. Uh, but yet, when, you know, when it came down to it, you could come up with three billion dollars for the richest man in the world. Um, and there was something of I don't want to call it, well, maybe it's something just short of an insurgency by labor and community activists who said that, one, this is outrageous, but also said, look, if you're coming to a place like New York, you know, you're going to have a union there. You're going to have a union that represents your workers, you know. And after several weeks after New York won the bid, Amazon, feeling the heat, just decided to pull out. And I think it's that was probably the latest in a series of events before and after uh, the events in New York, 
which show that maybe Amazon is not under siege, but it's under a lot of pushback in different places. So uh, in, in Seattle, there was a short-lived victory where the city council overwhelmingly passed this head tax that would tax you know corpor- the rich corporations based in the city to help with homelessness. Amazon freaked out about this, mobilized all their political power, and it was then rescinded, but with them looking very, very bad in the process of it. And a good example of a fight back that was won, uh, Somali immigrants, Somali Muslim immigrants, Amazon targets specific groups of people for employment, among them immigrants and refugees, uh, organized job actions and demanded that they have the right to pray on company, uh, on company time. They actually won that. Uh, Amazon uh, was so freaked out by the potential that this showed for job action to win concessions that they tried to disguise it as more of a community relations discussion rather than a worker insurgency on, on, on the job. So if we look, you know, from 10 years ago to now, these, you know, Amazon, the other tech giants have gone from being, you know, the saviors of humanity to being one of the problems with the crisis of humanity. It's begun to get something of a pushback uh, across across the country. And I think, you know, uh, as we saw here at the, the Socialism Conference, is that there is a great interest in how a new generation of socialists and labor activists would begin even to discuss organizing companies like Amazon. Because we can't even begin to deal with the political agenda of the of our issues, whether it be, you know, worker rights on the job to saving the planet, unless the political imb- power imbalance between people like Bezos and the rest of us is 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 corrected. And one of the most important ways to do that is that workers have to have a union. And are you saying that Amazon targets uh, immigrants and refugees? To hire them to work because they don't will not get as much money. Well, Amazon, you know, whether you want to call it clever or evil, is like a lot of major corporations. Is that they they realize that the logistics industry as a whole, for example, you know, whether you're in FedEx or UPS or Amazon, if you have if you have big warehouses and you have a lot of delivery drivers, you know, the turnover rate among part-time employees is not quite the same with full-time employees. But with part-time employees, there's nearly like a 90% turnover rate. So, for example, if you're hired right now with 100 people, a year from now, 90 of those people aren't going to be working there anymore. Uh, so one that's because of? Low wages, miserable working conditions. Sometimes it's just access to transportation to get to these places, a feeling like, you know, I'm stuck in this part-time hell and i got to get something else. Even if you go to another part-time job, the schedule may be better. Uh, particularly the last few years where unemployment overall is very low, but there's still huge, large pockets of unemployed people, particularly among African-American, uh, African-American youth. So one of the things that all the major companies like Amazon and UPS, FedEx do, is they try to target different potential labor pools to get a more stable workforce. So in the case of Amazon, one of the things they do is is they target older people. Now, there's a, a book that came out last year by Jessica Bruder called Nomad, Nomads. And what it does is it documents one of the more frightening aspects of modern America, which is the fact that nobody can retire anymore. Many people can't retire anymore, and that's mostly working class people. And so a lot of seniors, you know, they've lost their home, they can't afford their apartment, so they basically live out of their car or a small trailer and they travel the country. And Amazon has a whole program 
to track and recruit these people to work on a seasonal basis across the country. Many, uh, many companies, I mean, I know UPS did this for a very long time in Louisville, it still might, might do it, is that it, it had outreach programs to immigrant and refugee groups of people who need a job and, you know, are, are, are trying to seek some type of stable life in the U.S. Uh, many of these same companies also target college students. So like at a place like in Louisville, UPS has built literally a college campus inside of its enormous air hub uh, in order to sort of be able to have the student body there who can then work loading and unloading planes. Now, you know, the real answer to all of this stuff about the crisis of employment is to provide full-time jobs with a living wage and benefits, and that might be able to address your issues uh, that uh, of, of a turnover rate. And of course, you know, you have to go back to 1997 with the great UPS strike, in which those were really the heart, the heart of the issues. And then what's, you know, what's sort of disheartening on one hand, but also shows you, you know, that, not, that these issues are still alive, but that 22 years later, these are still the same issues that we're fighting over. Legendary consumer advocate Ralph Nader calls these subsidies to big corporations like Amazon and others a form of corporate welfare. Well, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, I, I know the stuff that's best around here, and I'm sure that, you know, if you went around and Googled any major newspaper across the country, you'd find the same thing, is that, you know, if you go up to Kenosha, Wisconsin, there's a massive Amazon hub up there. If you go to Joliet, uh, Illinois, there's, I think there's two now. There's talk of building a third. All of these places are being built with massive corporate subsidies. Uh, a few years ago when I was interviewing Mark Meinster from, you know, Warehouse Workers for Justice, he told me that when uh, Amazon built their warehouse in Kenosha, it was the first warehouse built in like 50 years in Kenosha. Um, they built it there because that's where they're, that's where the uh, they need to place something that they can then feed their local hubs from, you know, around around uh, yeah, Wash, uh, Wisconsin and, and Illinois. One study said that in many ways the subsidies themselves actually don't impact at all the building of the warehouses around the country. It's just really icing on the cake for the bosses. What they really did uh, look for uh, in terms of where they build and why was first and foremost right-to-work states, where unions are just weaker, right, or non-existent. I mean, or for all for all intents and purposes, non-existent in many ways. And the second thing that they looked for were political leaders that were would be prepared to help them out in the ways that they needed. So, in a lot of ways, it's not only corporate welfare, but it's also a total scam because even they admit that that's not the ultimate decision by why they build a hub where they do. Now, in 2018, uh, Amazon netted $11 billion in profits, didn't pay any taxes in 2018, didn't pay any taxes in the previous year, 2017. How did I get away with that? Look, this is the scandal that has, is part of why, you know, not only with the tech giants, you know, Facebook, Apple, uh, and Amazon leading the pack, is that, it, it, that none of these people pay taxes, or they pay very little. Uh, compared to what we pay. And it's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of the inequality of our time. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember uh, the old hotel heiress, Leona Hemsley, from, uh, from, from New York City, when, when she was cavalierly one night asked, you know, well, you know, do you pay taxes? And she said, well, little people t- pay taxes. Now, I don't know if she was deliberately trying to outdo Marie Antoinette, you know, the former queen of, of France. But, you know, I mean, I, I, but, you know, on one hand, comments like that, 
you know, represent a certain, you know, sense of privilege, you know. And, but I think that uh, that's another example of a bit of the pushback against Amazon that's going on across the country, that people want these comp- corporations to pay what we're paying. They don't want to subsidize them uh, anymore. Uh, they want their workers to be treated treated fairly. And, you know, all we're really getting from uh, Bezos and, and others is uh, no on all of that. Well, you have a political class that's enabling that. Well, absolutely. And, of course, you know, with Amazon is that, you know, they're not just enabling that, but the fact is is that Amazon is becoming part of how the U.S. government works. I mean, they've consolidated their second uh, headquarters now in northern Virginia because they're very open about their relationship to the Pentagon and the Central Intelligence Agency. So, you know, Amazon is, you know, only a half step away from being a, a wing of the U.S. government uh, at this point. Are they sharing their data with state authorities? Well, well, that's something we'll have to find out, won't we? But I think, you know, it's very clear that, you know, Amazon Web Services, which is really the fountain of profits that Amazon makes worldwide, uh, is clearly, uh, you know, integrated with the American national security state. And I don't say that out of any kind of, you know, funny paranoia. They're very open about it. And, and, of course, that goes back to the very beginnings of the Internet, which was, you know, an offshoot of American government uh, research and uh, uh, projects. And the Internet has always been, um, you know, uh, not just simply a government-sponsored uh, program, but one that's been integral to uh, the surveillance of the American population and the world population. So in some sense, you know, this recent stuff with Amazon and the Pentagon and the CIA is really just going back to where it all started. Well, what would you say to a worker who is under enormous stress, isn't being paid properly, has very few benefits, but wants to buy a book and can save a few bucks (laughs) by going through Amazon? You know, the first instinct of a lot of good people is always to say, look, if Amazon's this bad, don't use them. You know, and and you understand that. I mean, I'm not... You know, I mean, if I didn't like somebody who had a store down the street, I probably wouldn't go to their store. But when you're when you're dealing with, you know, um, people who work long hours, family pressures and try to squeeze out a few minutes in their lives, even things like shopping and doing the laundry become arduous tasks. And, you know, for the most part, you can understand why people shop at Amazon, use Amazon. I do, too. It's not that the system in, in you know uh, couldn't be made better it just could only could be made better ultimately if workers controlled it i mean imagine if we had a an amazon that was actually worker controlled rather than one run for the narrow profits of a of a few people i think we could talk about a very different type of way of organizing uh, modern life so what would you do for example I knew someone in Taos, New Mexico, an elderly woman. She was infirmed. It wasn't easy for her to get around at all. She couldn't drive. She depended on Amazon Mm -hmm. for delivery of food to her home. Well, that's true, and that's very true of Peapod. You know, I, I remember a few years ago when Peapod, you know, was doing this stuff a little bit before Amazon, and then Amazon, you know, uh, did a number of pilot programs to figure out if they could do the same thing on a metropolitan and uh, national uh, national scale. And I remember a lot of the time when we would talk about this stuff, because I used to be a, a, a work at UPS my last year there as a package car driver, is that, you know, all of us kind of understood why people use these services who were older and infirmed or had limited uh, mobility. Uh, and, and that, and that 
that made sense, you know, it made sense, you know. Um, there is a certain, uh, you know, among a certain class of Americans, though, I mean, you know, the, uh, the younger, wealthier people for whom, you know, conspicuous consumption and using things like Amazon and other delivery services is more of a sign of, you know, uh, the, the, a kind of terrible almost social gluttony that goes on. I mean, that does certainly exist. But I think for most people, they use things like Amazon and, and other services because it does make things more convenient. I mean, at one time, remember, the mall was more convenient. Uh, I mean, you grew up in New York, David, so you remember when all the shopping was simply down, you know, in Manhattan or, you know, you had to actually travel fairly long distances to go to something like a department store. So, you know, these things do make things more consistent, but they don't have to be done at the expense of the livelihood and the bodies of, of the workers, you know, and that's what I would say about that. Politically, what can be done to rein in the power of these huge corporate giants like Amazon? Well, I think that the the first step in that is that workers have to we have to figure out how you know we can begin organizing drives where workers themselves have power on the job. And if you don't have power on the job, you're not going to have political power. I think the other thing is is that we really do need to talk about just taking money out of politics. Um, it's you know. We don't even know because of the Citizens United ruling who's contributing all this enormous money to all of these foundations and front groups and political ad. We just don't even know where it comes from. We suspect we know where it comes from. And sometimes people boast about that. But I also think that there's, you know, old-fashioned organizing around things like, you know, no subsidies, uh, tax the rich, are all things that have to be done. But we also should recognize, and I think what we've learned, is these have to be national campaigns. Um, You know, one of the things that, unfortunately, many corporations learned a long time ago is the ability to play off unionized states with non-union states, with one city against another, and one worker, one local union against another. And so we need a better labor movement. And I think we have to start talking about building something more like a labor party in this country because, you know, a party of the rich is never going to represent the rest of us. Thanks very much. Thank you, David. That was Joe Allen pushing back at Amazon. I talked with him in early July in Chicago at the Socialism 2019 conference. Joe Allen is a Chicago-based writer and activist in peace and social justice movements. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 34th year, we are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Michael Yates, Noam Chomsky, Winona LaDuke, Nader Hashemi, and Bill McKibben. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Joe Allen, pushing back at Amazon, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.